Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. Welcome to episode five of Open Ears, Maine. It is Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. Felt like an autumn day out there almost today with a little bit of snow and lots of rain. However, it was just the push the grass needed and I'm happy to report everything's greening up nicely out here. In the foothills of Western Maine, I'm your host, Crash Berry, editor-at-large for Mainer, the magazine and website at MainerNews.com. By the way, if you enjoy true, true crime podcasts, be sure to check out Devils and Dirtbags. Uh, that's my 13-part investigation of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts, that's at devilsanddirtbags.com or wherever you download. On today's show, we'll be speaking to Ed O'Brien. Ed's a Mid-Coast Maine psychoanalyst. And we're going to be talking about how COVID-19 is impacting uh, his patients. And perhaps we'll discuss some coping mechanisms for dealing with pandemic stress. But first, uh, the numbers. According to the state of Maine, as of today, there have been 1,023 confirmed cases of COVID-19. 549 Mainers have recovered, and there have been 51 deaths. And Maine uh, CDC Director Dr. Nirva Shah tweeted today that out of the 1,023 confirmed COVID cases in Maine, 245 are healthcare workers. So that's about a quarter of the cases in Maine are healthcare workers. And in unemployment news, with over 100,000 Mainers out of work since the pandemic shut down the state, starting Friday, farmers, fishermen, uh, sole proprietors, and the self-employed will finally be able to file for unemployment benefits. Uh, you should visit the state's Department of Labor website for details. But according 
to reports, workers whose claims don't need any further review could start receiving their benefits within a week. So hopefully that will help out a lot of the self-employed Mainers, people who are part of the, the gig economy and are artists and farmers and fishermen, those in need of some income. The big news of the day, though, was Governor Janet Mills released her plan to reopen the state. So I watched most of that press conference uh, this afternoon. And according to the governor, on Friday, uh, May 1st, we'll be entering what's being called Stage 1. And Stage 1 means most of the current state of emergency rules are still in effect. So there's still no gatherings greater than 10 uh, a 14-day quarantine for snowboard, snowbirds and out-of-staters. So still a 14-day quarantine and still work at home if possible, the, gov- the governor says, including state workers. There is a new rule, however. It's requiring face coverings, apparently. Face coverings in public, according to the governor, though, it doesn't It doesn't mean masks. Uh, The state is going to issue guidelines for these, quote, face coverings uh, that you'll have to wear in places where you won't be able to social distance. So the governor suggested that you have one available with you wherever you might go. And it sounds like uh, handkerchiefs and scarves and bandanas would be allowed. Uh, It just doesn't mean masks. Also of note from that press conference, violating any of the governor's orders apparently is a punishable crime up to six months in prison. Uh, No word on how enforcement of the new face covering rule was going to go down. But the big news of the stage one is the reopening on May 1st of many businesses that have been shut down, uh, provided these businesses obey some new rules, um, apparently yet to be disclosed rules. There's going to be a website, of course, with these new rules for barbers and hair salons, uh, pet groomers, all of them will be able to reopen. And also now allowed is limited drive-in, stay-in-your-vehicle religious services. So limited drive-in, stay-in-your-vehicle religious services. Those are now allowed. I wonder how that's going to work. Almost makes me want to go to church just to see how that turns out. Also allowed to reopen will be drive-in movie theaters. And main guides are back in business as long as they're guiding Mainers, I suppose, or snowbirds or people from away that have done the quarantine. So hunting and fishing guides can be back to work. And there's going to, I guess there's going to be some restricted use of golf, disc golf courses. So that's been a real contentious issue. A lot of um, golfers are upset that they can't use the golf course where it's fairly easy to maintain social distances. Uh, During the press conference, the governor and others mentioned the 
the need to work in conjunction with other states on what's allowed to be open. Uh, For instance, golf courses in Massachusetts are closed and continue to be closed because there's lots of COVID-19 in Massachusetts. So I guess the governor is slightly wary about opening Maine's golf courses in fear that Massachusetts golfers will make the drive up to go golfing in Maine and perhaps be carriers. So uh, they're going to be a, apparently, apparently some golf courses will be open. It's not clear yet uh, because actually one of the county by county measures that may be put in effect concern golf courses. But most of these rules are statewide Uh, The governor said they will review them on a county-by-county basis, so maybe golf courses down east or up in the county will open before the Portland courses. Uh, State parks and state public land trails and historic sites will also be reopened, though I, I think there's still some coastal state parks, beaches that will remain closed and also reopening our auto dealerships and car washes. And then on June 1st, stage two is slated to begin, provided there's no surge in COVID-19 cases, which means that gatherings up to 50 people would be allowed, which means some bars and restaurants may be able to open. That's June 1st. Uh, The same goes for gyms and nail salons and lodging and campgrounds for Mainers or for anyone who has met the 14-day quarantine requirement. Uh, So apparently, as long as there's no surge, we'll see some restaurants and bars open on June 1st. And again, uh, these stages are supposed to be implemented statewide. Um, Not county by county, which I know many people in rural Maine had hoped that the rural counties would open before the coastal. Uh, According to the governor, she said that just because there's low COVID-19 numbers in a rural county, quote, doesn't mean the virus isn't there. Uh, Stage two may also mean the opening of day camps. Opening day camps for Maine kids, I'm sure a lot of parents are relieved by that news, but the many out-of-state campers and I guess unless they have a 14-day quarantine, which seems unlikely because uh, to attend a day camp. So summer camp, day camps for Maine kids apparently will be opened June 1st. Uh, Great relief to parents, I'm sure. And then stage three is slated for July and August. And uh, those details are quite fuzzy, okay? Uh, But the state might allow for campgrounds and hotels and summer camps and charter boats and other outdoor activities for Mainers and those who meet the 14-day quarantine. So, needless to say, it seems like the summer tourist season is going to be a bust, which is very, very stressful for Maine since we're heavily dependent on that tourist dollar and... I'm sure that the governor's decision to implement stages to reopening has 
infuriated many Mainers. Um, a lot of people are stressed out. A lot of people are angry. A lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are broke. A lot of people are out of work. And now we won't have a summer tourism season. So that gives us even more reason to uh, shop locally and support our fellow Mainers during this bizarre moment in history. And it's no better time for a staycation, that's for sure. And I'm wondering if some of these uh, main summer sleepaway camps might be able to offer some special programs for Maine families. Give parents a little break this summer. Coming up, we'll speak to Ed O'Brien. He's a psychoanalyst from Midcoast, Maine, and a social worker for two decades, therapist for a dozen years. And Ed has worked extensively with Child Protective Services, and he's involved in family law matters. And he also sees many teen and adult patients wondering how COVID-19 has impacted his patient's therapy and what can we do to ease stress about the unknown? Depression is the largest cause of disability worldwide. Worst, depression can lead to suicide. In humanitarian emergencies, one in five people are affected by depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety lead to a global economic loss of one trillion U.S. dollars per year. On average, just three percent of government health budgets is invested in mental health. Depression can be prevented and treated at relatively low cost. Treatment usually involves talking therapy or antidepressant medication or both. If you think you have depression, talk to someone you trust. Seek professional help. Depression. Let's talk. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now is Ed O'Brien, a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist from Midcoast, Maine. Ed, it seems like everyone's lives are being affected by COVID-19 in ways big and small. What kind of complaints and worries are you hearing from your patients? Well, Crash, I think the the big thing is all our underlying issues are being affected by what's going on in the larger world. So people may already be struggling with anxiety or various other traumatic issues, and you're adding on top of it this kind of, I guess, worldwide trauma we're all experiencing. Um, so it certainly is um, impacting people in many ways. Um, and, you know, just trying to help them with the, the issues that are already there while acknowledging that we all kind of have a shared struggle right now. Is therapy uh, considered essential or non-essential uh, in this state of emergency? 
I believe we are considered essential employees, although uh, almost all of us are uh, working remotely right now. Because I imagine uh, beforehand it was all face-to-face. Was the patient on the couch, or is it more like you sit opposite each other at a desk and table or something like that? They generally pick one of the chairs in my office. I don't have a couch. Um, But, yeah, they they pick the chair they're most comfortable with, and we speak face-to-face or sometimes parallel. (laughs) So now, though, you're in your office, uh, you were home for uh, three weeks uh, doing therapy from home. Uh, What was that like, working from home? You know, Crash, it was actually far more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, I realized after doing this for a while that I was starting to have a harder time letting go of my, uh, my work life because it was completely interconnected. I would take a break in between patients and go upstairs and my wife is homeschooling our kids and the mother's got a project going on. Um, and it was starting to affect me in ways I didn't realize. In what ways would you say? I think I just had a harder time letting go of my client stories because when I'm at my office, when I close that door and leave at 4.30 at night in the afternoon, I'm leaving their stories there where they belong. And I was finding there were stories affecting me more in my home because they were happening in my home. Talk about taking work home with you. So you would leave a therapy session kind of burdened by their trials and tribulations. You didn't have that before. How did that impact your skills as a therapist? Well, I think that I, before I was, I never had this problem prior to, you know, the last few weeks um, because I always had that kind of time to, in some ways sort of decompress and leave this work, my work at my office and come home and then be a dad and a husband and a you know, son, all the things I do at home. Um, so it definitely was, I don't think it was impacting my, my therapy necessarily, but it was definitely impacting me. So now you're transitioning back to working in the office from home uh, so that you could get that separation. What kind of technology are you using to uh, hear your uh, patients' therapy sessions? Generally, I, I ask them what they're most comfortable with. And for the most part, uh, Zoom and FaceTime work well. Um, I even have one client who I use Discord with because that's what they're most comfortable with. Um, uh, dis- so Discord, isn't that a – I'm sorry, Discord, isn't that a – is that like a gaming server? Is that what that is? Or what is Discord? It generally is, yes. It's, a, it's, a, okay. it's used much for gaming. Um, but this was what the, the client was most comfortable with. And I said, well, fine. <laughs> if that okay. works for you and it was very effective. What about your older patients? Are they able to adapt to having the technology? Um, generally, they have. I've found that um, the patients that have the hardest time with it are those with pretty significant developmental delays. Um, and I've several patients and also sometimes younger patients, uh, I just, we've kind of taken a, taken a bit of a break, maybe a phone check in occasionally just to see where they're at, but not actually doing uh, regular therapy at this time. I'm imagining that there are certain nonverbal clues and cues, uh, that you get face to face there. Are, what kind of clues and cues are you missing from teleconferencing like that? It definitely does make it tricky with, with certain situations. You're not able to see as much body language. Even when you're in a video chat, you've only got basically their, their head, maybe their hands, and, and me as well. I mean, they're also trying to read my own cues 
because, of course, our, our, my patients also read me as much as I read them sometimes. Um, so that definitely has uh, been challenging in some situations. However, I would say that I have some patients who actually seem to adapt very quickly to the video and maybe even be more comfortable with it. Are you seeing any drawbacks from using it? Uh, oh, certainly. There definitely are many drawbacks. Um, but also it sort of is what's available right now. Um, I would prefer to do face-to-face, -face, and I would say the vast majority of my clients would also prefer to do face-to-face. -face. just not an option at this time. I know that in rural Maine, healthcare in some places we have healthcare deserts. There are many places in Maine where people would have to drive 45 minutes or an hour or whatever to get to a therapist. And I keep on trying to find glimmers of hope in this. I'm like, well, maybe now therapy will be available to those of us in rural Maine without having to drive somewhere. Do you think that's going to happen in the future? Or as soon as possible, is therapy going to go back to the couch or the chair? You know, Crash, actually, I think many people find this actually pretty accessible to do over teleconferencing. Um, and I'm sort of hopeful that in the wake of this, the insurance companies will become more they already have in, in response to crisis, but they will be able to accept more telehealth. Um, I have already had some experience doing it with um, clients who might go away to college and want to continue with a therapist they're comfortable with. So I think it actually is generally very effective. Not every patient, but many patients do very well with it, and I don't think there's much of a difference. Ideally, it would be in person, but I imagine uh, you're in mid-coast. Do you have any patients, let's say, on the islands that uh, it would be easier for them to do this uh, on a regular basis? Exactly. As a therapist, what other aspects uh, would you as a therapist think is missing from doing this teleconferencing? You know, I think that definitely it's harder to connect with somebody who I have not worked with previously. And as this is going on, uh, I'm, I'm picking on new patients from time to time, and I've never met with them in person. Um, and I think it's easier to work with somebody who I previously worked with in person, so we actually kind of have this maybe deeper connection by meeting face-to-face. -face. Um, in the perfect world of telehealth, I would want to be able to meet with them in person occasionally, um, right now, of course, that's not an option, but if I was going to do telehealth as a regular part of my practice after things subside, I would still want to meet with them in person at least a couple times because um, I think there is just a, a connection of sitting in the same room with somebody. Oh, I'm sure, of a human connection. You mentioned the insurance companies. They didn't cover telehealth before, but because of the pandemic, they're currently covering it? It was sporadic what they would cover and what they wouldn't. Every insurance company has very different rules and complicated rules. Um, so they might they might cover it, they might not. They might cover it at a different lower rate. Um, issues of, of cross-state lines. There's lots of other issues that get really complicated, which is, uh, I think, an overall issue with our healthcare system. Um, you sort of, as a private practitioner, have to get very well-versed in reading through various insurance plans, um, rules, and regulations. Uh, everything's sort of loosened up with the, with the crisis. Prior, it was, it was rather difficult to, to guarantee you'd actually get reimbursed. When I think of therapy, and there's always been this kind of like unspoken boundary between the therapist and the patient, where there's you know, this kind of level of not getting involved in their personal lives, but now you're seeing them in their homes. 
you never would see them in their homes before. You would see them in, in your office. Are you seeing them in their kind of a natural environment? Are they disheveled? Are they different than they are when they come in to see you in the office? It's actually sort of an un, unexpected benefit of doing telehealth is I do see them in their own environment. And I pick up on things I didn't know about them. I meet their cat. I hear their kids in the background. Um, I had, you know, one person showing me their record collection. So it's actually, there's some benefits to that. Or one client who would proceed to pace around the room as, as they're speaking to me. And that gave me a really good insight into what was going on in their psyche at that time. So there, there are some, some benefits to seeing people in their own environment. When they're pacing, are they carrying their device with them? So is your, your camera moving back and forth? Or are you just seeing them come in and out of the frame? In, in, that, in that case, I was thinking of, yes, they were carrying the phone. And I was like, okay, how many times have you circled this room right now? What's going on? But this is totally new territory because you never would have had a, a, any reason to visit them in their house before, correct? Correct. With the record collection, uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, was was that, a, that a helpful therapeutic tool that you guys shared together? It, with this particular client, it, it definitely was because it gave me understanding of kind of who they were as a as a adolescent um, in this day and age. Um, it gave me huge insights into this particular person. Is this like a record collection of an older person? Uh, actually, a younger person. It was a reflection of an older person that belonged to a younger person. Okay. So uh, <laughs> their preferences might add insight into their character that you never would have thought to ask about before. Is it a question that you normally ask your patients, tell me about your record collection? Not often, <laughs> unless it comes up. Obviously, uh, more people than usual are feeling uh, stressed these days, uh, even ones that didn't have pre-existing stressful situations. Uh, we spoke to a nurse last week. I talked about the stress that patients on her floor in the hospital are feeling, and it's probably amplified because their televisions are on in the hospital rooms, and it was adding to the patient's stress. Are you seeing that your patients are being stressed by the media? Oh, very much so. Um, I would say they always have been, um, but with all the stuff right now, it definitely is people are really uncertain, and there's no... There's no good answer. I think that's the hardest thing is we don't like change as a, as a species. Change is hard. Um, and without any uncertainty, just, we have no idea when this will end, when things will open up, when things will be back to normal. Because really, things won't ever be back to normal, which can be very helpful at a therapeutic level because conversations with clients is about change is inevitable and change is scary, but it's going to happen regardless. And so learning to accept the uncertainty is is massively important. So I think in some ways these, this crisis is helping me kind of reinforce um, messages I've already tried to get to my clients of accepting change and not trying to fight what you can't change. You have no control over the future, and that's one of the things that's uh, affecting everyone across the spectrum. In Maine, you know, there's these predictions uh, that, the economic impact is going to be gargantuan. That's a different sort of stress for us. It's almost like a diagnosis for an illness that we haven't gotten yet. So how do you deal with that kind of foreboding future? 
I, to be honest, I oftentimes will, will share my own stress, not to a you know, large level, but just to acknowledge that, yeah, I hear you. I'm there with you. Because one thing about this crisis is even though it's affecting each of us differently, I'm obviously very fortunate to be able to still work through it. Um, but we're all experiencing it and sort of, no, I, I, I'm going to acknowledge that what you're feeling is 100% legitimate. Um, and it is scary for people that are that are unemployed or facing uncertain employment as a result of it. Um, so I think that just acknowledging that this, this fucking sucks right now. And this is hard. This is really freaking hard. And it's really uncertain. And that's really scary. And it's okay to feel those things. And now what are you going to do about it? Because this is where we're at. After you acknowledge that it's scary and this is where we're at, do you set up some sort of action plan to take? Is there something we can do almost to prepare for this? Uh, in addition to acknowledging, yeah, we're kind of screwed here, but like some practical mental health techniques that might make it a little easier? Absolutely. And I think that, that so much of what is stressful and what's anxiety-provoking, regardless of what's going on in the world, it's the stuff we can't change. And we deal with it all the time in our lives. And it is a sense of, okay, here we are. This is happening. The, you know, the COVID is a storm coming in. We can do something to prepare for it. We can, you know, batten down the hatches. We can, you know, get the Dillon furniture inside. Things we do when the storm's coming. But ultimately, we can't stop it from happening. We've got to survive it. And we can't get mad about it happening because it's going to happen regardless. And so... It, it just kind of fits an overall theme in, in lives. And so there's certain things that, okay, so it's acknowledging a stress, um, learning ways to distract your brain when, you're, when your mind's just going 50 million miles an hour, thinking about all the things you're, you're worried about and scared about, learning how to just distract yourself from that in the moment, to just take some time to breathe. It isn't easy, but it's going to happen. To distract your brain, many ways to do that, uh, practical ones, you know, maybe exercise or taking up a hobby. Is that what you're are – you, are you suggesting that kind of uh, action? For certain people, yes. The, the, the big three that they talk about mental health is sort of making sure you're eating okay, getting enough sleep, and getting some kind of moderate exercise, even just walking the dog or whatever. It doesn't need to be intense. Um, I also think that doing something with your hands can be helpful. You'll notice all these people baking bread for the first time. Because that in itself is therapeutic. Planting a garden is therapeutic. We don't need to be able to feel overly stressed out being. We need to find something really productive to feel right now. But just doing things will sort of get you out of your own head. Uh, our, our biggest um, enemy sometimes is our own brain, which tells us things that are not helpful. So I think finding ways to sort of distract the cope to be in the moment you're in and not, not try to focus too much on the uncertainty of the future. Being the moment that we're in right now, but also, uh, what about people using uh, escapism? Let's say, I would love to see more people reading, but binging on Netflix or listening to a lot of podcasts. Is that an adequate response uh, in terms of distraction? I think it can be part of a sort of a, a diet of distractions. I don't think you should ever go into all one thing. Um, I think just sitting there and watching Netflix for the next, you know, however many weeks probably isn't the best idea. <laughs> It's okay to watch freaking Tiger King because it's funny and it, it distracts you. It's okay to do a lot of things. It's again comes back to that kind of old moderation question. You know, it's okay to do things. It's okay to eat. You know, things you shouldn't eat in moderation. But then also try to eat some healthy foods. Also, good exercise. Also, you know, do things that are more healthy for you. 
above and beyond worry, I'm thinking about like people are very lonely, especially ones that are, you know, already isolated, self-quarantine, social distancing. Loneliness is a very weird thing in modern times. How to deal with that? And that is definitely a tricky one because with the, the need to, to, to quarantine, to isolate, it is it can be isolating, especially if you don't have anybody. Um, I think that, that, you know, certainly when you have the availability of technology, it's certainly helpful to try to reach out to people, um, to find ways to, to get out where you can. Um, you know, I'm always amazed watching as I drive into Camden to my, my office, seeing, you know, people you know, waving to each other from across the street and trying to find that little bit of connection um, to try to reach out to old friends via, via some sort of technology. I think those things are sort of what we've got, but there's no real easy answer because if we're, you know, following the guidelines, we're not getting together. And that is really isolating for a lot of people. Makes you kind of wonder how they did it with previous pandemics, 1918 uh, pandemic, things like that. When you didn't have that technology and either to, A, to spread the news of what's going on, but also to kind of try to quell that loneliness. I wonder what they did to take care of the loneliness of quarantine. No, it, it's huge. I think what makes it harder for our culture is we're, we sort of got okay with having our connections being further apart. When if you go back even 100 years, people didn't, you know, people didn't know many people outside of their own geographical location and I've heard comments from people saying I'm getting to know my neighbors and that was really sort of you know kind of interesting like wait so you never knew who your neighbor was because you never had a reason to but now the only person you see is the person who takes a draft at the same time as you. the person who walks the same same you know few blocks you walk so people are starting to find connections they didn't know they had because they aren't able to connect to people that are maybe more important to them but are they're not able to see because of distance because of restrictions on visitation you're saying that they almost become friends by accident here because there's nobody else to be friends with at this point one of the things i have been doing to take care of myself so to speak is i i love sitting out in my garden with, with a book in the afternoon and the number of people that drive by honking the horn and, and you know waving out the window it's always been sort of happened a lot here anyway but it's just been increased so much because people are like people go running with a dog and say hi and Actually, I'm finding people are being pretty friendly and pretty outgoing, more than they would have been maybe in the past. At the start of this pandemic, I felt that there was a lot more community and the possibility of revolution because of our shared experience of what's going on right now. However, in a conversation last week with a, a lawyer, uh, I said, well, what's your view of the future? And he's like very pessimistic because he thought that that almost honeymoon period of that first week or two of pandemic seemed like, well, what a great possible future we have. But now he just sees societal breakdown. Uh, thoughts on that? Well, I think that, that there's definitely that side of it as well. I mean, I, I listen to part of that podcast, and as someone who works a lot in family law and does a lot of uh, co-parenting work, um, I've seen a lot of the really bad parts that humanity has to offer. Um, and I, I've certainly seen it in the, the open to back up protests that have gone on, which are just, you know, winding things up. I tend to believe pretty strongly in that people ultimately want to do the right thing. Um, people in groups can do terrible things, but people individually don't. Um, as somebody who's 
you know, living in the town he grew up in, I see, sure, I see people that are, that are negative and they're nasty, but I see so much more good, and I see that people would rather be kind and would rather reach out to the neighbor. Um, it's one thing to speak about somebody you don't actually know, but when it's your neighbor who needs help, regardless of who they voted for, you're going to help them. And I think that I do see more of that. And I think that ultimately, I think the general, I don't know, altruistic, positive nature of humanity will win out as much as there's always going to be negativity. I'd like to think the same thing, though. I am fairly pessimistic at times, but it always reminds me of when I lived out on Matinicus and, you know, arch enemies, people who would shoot each other if they have the chance. But if a hurricane's coming, everybody's down on the shore helping pull the skiffs up above the tide line, above the way above the tide line, you know, sworn enemies the next week. But during that crisis, they come together. Uh, and I've always used Matinicus as a microcosm for the real world, so which is perhaps dangerous. Uh, there is a certain lack of structure here in this new world, you know, especially, you know, we used to have the kids getting ready to go to school in the morning or, you know, going to school, uh, coming home. Those rituals are long gone right now. Any suggestions for parents on how to suddenly deal with having their kids around all the time, especially if the parents are working from home? Well, that's it. In the perfect world, you provide a level of structure because you can. When, when both parents are, are working, that's working from home, that's really or working out of the home. It's really, really hard. But I think whatever little bit of structure, routine, you give your family, your kids, yourself, um, I think routine is really important. Um, trying to maintain a, a steady kind of you know, bedtime, wake up time, whatever works for you. Uh, I think that we, we do thrive on structure. And, you know, I noticed in my own family this week because it's school vacation. And so where we had been homeschooling our kids during the week, that went out the window and it was a kind of a hard week because that, that little, little tiny bit of structure we were maintaining in this was gone. The other big thing is don't judge yourself. It's okay to not great with this. Um, I think it was uh, um, our CDC director who said that a few times, that it's okay not to be okay. And I think we all tend to kind of judge ourselves. Are we doing, are we, are we, are we quarantining correctly? Are we handling this the right way? You know what? You're doing the best you can. Yeah, it's great to structure as much as possible. It's great to get exercise and do these things, but don't beat yourself up if you're not always doing everything you feel like you should be doing. I wonder if there's a little bit of that kind of a social media pressure, too, for a lot of people when they see people accomplishing a lot of stuff right now and kind of guilt or that, oh, geez, I'm not doing as much. And, in fact, I'm kind of guilty. I, I brag, you know, I'm so far ahead of my firewood this year. It's like <laughs> I'm going to have – You bastard. I, I, Ed, I think there's a chance I could have next year's – I might have two years' firewood when I'm done with this. Back to what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, many of your patients, or probably all your patients, were dealing with things before the pandemic hit. And I, I keep on thinking about people who were, let's say, in bad relationships, abusive relationships, you know, even considering ending a relationship, and then, boom, the pandemic comes and their escape plan is thwarted. Have you encountered that? And if so, what do you tell the patient how to deal with that? It absolutely is an ongoing issue. I, I haven't specifically dealt with it on one of my caseloads. I do. Um, I'm a consultant for Knoxville Homeless Coalition, um, and they are amazing a bunch of people that are trying to do their best through this and out there working and put themselves at risk to try to help people 
um, get out of really bad situations. Um, and, and it absolutely is something that just is so scary because you can't escape. And, um, and I think that's, that's something we need to be really aware of. And, um, and I'm hoping we can create more and more things to sort of help people out of situations. I, I, I'm sure that new hope for women is working really hard with this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. Um, I have a background in child protective services and I just think about kids that are stuck at home with no one to sort of, and before it was the teachers who were the ones who noticed when something was wrong and they're not there. Um, so oh. it certainly is something that's, that's pretty scary. Child protective services is still out there doing the best they can with a tough situation. I was also thinking about people with mental health issues that have been put on medication, stabilizing, you know, their anxiety or depression. How do those psych meds work in a situation like this, where even those, you know, so-called healthy people are stressed? Is the pandemic stress able to be medicated away for those types of situations? You know, to some level. I mean, I'm, I'm not obviously an expert in psychotropic medications. I, I deal with them a lot. Um, anxiety is just always really hard to treat with medication anyway. Um, but I, I do know, you know, personally, um, you know, the psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners are still working really, really hard with their patients, um, usually remotely, but trying to make sure that their um, their clients are still doing well, that they're they're still getting the medication they need and, and upping as necessary. So I know that my, my patients who are on, on medication are I'm encouraging them and they generally are keeping close contact with, with the doctors or the prescribers to to make sure that they are well aware of where, where they're at through this. And, and frankly, some, some patients are actually doing better. Um, I've, I've definitely seen that where some patients who kind of always had a great deal of anxiety or actually their anxiety symptoms are kind of lessened because, okay, I'm actually in a crisis and now I'm going to do okay. <laughs> what about the fears that uh, people have, whether they be your patients or people in general, what I view as almost a, a shortage mentality, the fear of running out of food and other essentials. What, what kind of advice do you have for people that are like stressed out about that aspect of our society? You know, that, that kind of comes under the whole, what can you control piece? Um, you know, trying to rationalize it. Okay. Look, there's food still being produced. It's still out there. Um, toilet paper is still being made while well, acknowledging the anxiety about it but also trying to and, and help them kind of learn to listen to the rational brain rather than the emotional part of the brain, which is just freaking out. Um, you know, we can't, you know, they hear something about, you know, a, a meat packing plant shut down. It's like, okay, yep, that's a thing. We can't change that. However, you know, we live in Maine. There's lots of, you know, other producers out there. Restaurants aren't buying the food. Um, but trying to rationalize as well as accept that, yeah, that's, that's an anxiety. That is a worry. That's okay to worry about that, but let's try to moderate it a bit. Um, so there is, again, an easy solution because there is some, I don't know, maybe maybe there will be a food crisis. Um, I, I hope not, but can't change that either way. <laughs> Any theory on the toilet paper hoarding? I think that fits under the category of trying to affect what you can affect. I can't control anything else, but at least I'll have plenty of toilet paper. I remember like in the, the first, the first days of this going shopping and I'm, I'm the, the shopper for my family as well as my mom, as well as her, her friend. So I'm going into the grocery store with three lists and I feel like I'm in the apocalypse and I masked my gloves. 
only one bag of potatoes. Oh my God, I need to get that bag of potatoes. And there is a psychological component to that of, of when you see someone buying, you know, five roll and five you know, things of toilet paper. Oh Jesus, I need to get toilet paper. So I think there's there's a combination of, of factors of both being like I can control this knowing that I have plenty of toilet paper or plenty of whatever. Um, but also I see other people buying this or this is almost out, so I better buy this now, even though I may never use dry beans. Who uses dry beans? I mean, I have tons of dry beans to grow them, but they're not that easy to use. So who is using all the dry beans that have been bought? I'm sorry, Ed. I I use dry beans, so I'm the one buying all the dry beans and using them. Uh, On a more serious note, life goes on through the pandemic, as does death. And I think about the people maybe already in mourning for deaths that happened, let's say, just prior to the pandemic. And it feels like that, you know, that, that grief might get lost in the shuffle. Is that something that can be dealt with somehow? That's a really tough one, um, you know, you know, and working with situations where people have had deaths during this. Uh, it compounds the grief because you can't mourn the way you would have. The families can't get together. Um, and it's, I don't have a good answer for that crash. I just know that it is a really really tough issue we're dealing with because, um, you know, people are still dying in this. And and if people die of of COVID, you can't even be with them when they die. And we can't, we can't mourn the way we used to. Right now, you're not even able to have, you don't have the community response to the grieving process. So is is it going to be harder to recover from loss? I think, it, I think it can be, although I have seen, thinking of a, of a particular uh, loss that, that someone had recently, where there, it was online, there was like people were lighting candles in their own homes and doing things they could do to deal with this really tragic sudden loss. Um, so I think people do adapt. Um, and though I can't say it makes it easier, it certainly isn't easier and maybe harder, people find ways to still grieve, still adapt, and still show their love to somebody. Um, so again, we're incredibly resilient animal. We're able to, we're able to adjust to situations and our situations change. And so we're adjusting to it in all kinds of ways. What is the regular advice for somebody that's alone in their grief? Cause I think right now people are grieving all sorts of things, whether it be, you know, a death or the loss of a job or the loss of a business. Grief comes in many shapes. What's some practical advice for people you know, it's 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 so unique to people. It's hard to give kind of a this is what you should do kind of thing. But definitely, I mean, frequently I would be advising people to try to connect with other people, with with, with loved ones and people that care about them, um, which we find to find new ways of doing that. Um, I think that just being able to talk about what you're feeling and accept that what you're feeling is normal. And again, that's something you can do in spite of the pandemic. You can find ways to reach out and just talk and vent or just say, I'm... I'm hurting here. This is hard. Um, and I think that's the, so in some ways that advice doesn't necessarily change. Just the, the means of which to do it has changed. Because you can't actually go out and gather people. But again, grief of any kind is so individual. And um, I definitely think the first step is acknowledging the loss. Another issue that comes up because of the pandemic is people dealing with addictions, for a while, AA and other um, meetings were shut down because of social distance rules. I understand some meetings are now happening, and a friend of mine actually told me about attending a Zoom AA meeting. 
Uh, what, what kind of unique issues are are there for people dealing with addiction during a pandemic? So, I mean, that's it, because so much of, of addiction treatment, particularly AA or NA, is about connection with other people. But again, I'm seeing the adaption happen. I'm seeing my clients who are involved in AA and NA finding Zoom meetings pretty useful. And also, you know, I've heard also tales of people saying, wow, I could, I could Zoom with my old, my old group that I used to be with a year, years ago before I moved. And so, because these are open meetings, um, you might have a, a meeting you really liked when you lived Montanicus, and wow, I can zoom into the Montanicus meeting. Um, so that that is happening. I find that there's a lot of adaption going on, and I can't say it's it's better. I think it's still as hard for people, but once they kind of connect to that, um, I think that there's people are finding ways to still make those connections, and and people are still working with their sponsors. Um, and I think those connections are continuing. They're just they're just moving to a new platform. One final question, I guess, knowing that you have a lot of experience with children uh, and children are dealing with their stress of their parents stressing right now and the stress of change being educated at home, let's say, and being exposed to the media. Uh, There's a lot of stress on the little ones in our society. How do you suggest parents discuss the pandemic with children? I'm always a fan of being really open with kids, almost going, being, telling them more than you think they should know. Um, we forget how, how bright kids really are and how they, they, they know what's going on. They know it's scary. They know their parents are scared. So talk about that. Let them know that, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous too. This worries me too. While also providing the reassuring messages of, you know, what, you know, in, in some ways you can almost convince yourself, well, I'm worried, but I talk I'm worried and not scare you. But I think it's okay to say, yeah, this, this makes me nervous too. You know, we're staying home because we don't want Grammy to get sick. Um, you know, I, you know, we're doing these things and we're doing, we're, we're, we're being controlled and showing them um, as much control as you can. And also sort of limiting some of the exposure, like maybe turn off the TV sometimes. <laughs> screen, screen time is, is, is definitely more than it's ever been. I think for most, most families are finding they're doing more screen time. Um, of course, that's the only way, you know, our kids can connect with their friends sometimes. Um, but I think the big complaint I've heard from my adolescent clients is my mom won't shut up about the COVID. <laughs> so it's like, you know, understand you might, your own fear might be bleeding over more than you want it to. And, and actually having a conversation with them, uh, you may be trying to be reassuring as well. Just one more comment about the screen time. I've seen studies that have said uh, that screen time should be reduced already, yet we're using screens in schools because of the situation. They're using screens all the time, and it would have been recommended before the pandemic to reduce your kids' screen time. Is this going to have some sort of lasting impact on us because it's all screens all the time? You know, it might. It, it will. I mean, of course, everything has an impact. Um, I tend to think part of it, though, is, is I find that the adults have a harder time with screen time than the, than the kids do. Kids are oftentimes better able to regulate the screen time than the parents sometimes. So the parents are really worked up about it. At the same time, they're on the screens all the time. So it's definitely something worth being aware of, but also understand that for our kids, this already is their life. You know, and they've, they've adapted to it better, I think, than we have sometimes and, are, and seem almost less and this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I feel like sometimes kids need it less than adults do. And they're able to find time to do other things. And 
we get judgy sometimes because we don't really understand what they're doing on their screens, but it is sort of their world. So I think that, yes, we need to be mindful of it and pay attention. We'll also, before we look at our kids, look at ourselves. How much are we using it? Ed O'Brien, licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist from Midcoast, Maine. Uh, thank you very much for your insight. Any final words of wisdom for the listener? You know, Crash, just I think goes back to being okay with not being okay sometimes. Uh, we'll get through this, stay kind, and just do the best you can. Man, I'm about to fly this thing myself. This autopilot is being crazy. I think it's bipolar or something. Well, that makes two of us. What's that? I have bipolar disorder, and I'm your co-pilot. You and me have been flying a long time, and I know you don't think I'm crazy, but you might want to watch what words you toss around. Wow, this guy in 7A is crazy. He just ate his 12th bag of nuts. He is nuts. I mean, leave some for the rest of us. Crazy, huh? Yeah, he was crazy hungry, I guess. Is this crazy? <laughs> yes, that was crazy. How's about this? <laughs> How about that? Was that crazy? Yeah, I've got to admit, that was pretty crazy. Wrong. <laughs> Nobody's crazy. Using those kind of words alienates people. Makes them feel like it's them against the world. Plenty of us got mental health conditions, but that doesn't mean we're crazy. Wow, I never thought about it like that. You know what? I'm going to go give the guy in 7A some more nuts. judge ourselves, not to beat ourselves up over the little stuff, and that in these trying times, we should be kind to each other, and that's always good advice. 
coming up on Thursday, on Thursday's show, on the eve of reopening many of the state's shuttered businesses, we'll speak to a barber who has been involved in a haircutting speakeasy in Greater Portland. I do believe that's the first time that sentence has been uttered. A barber who has been involved in a haircutting speakeasy in Greater Portland. Hmm. And we'll hear from a woman laid off from her job as a restaurant cook and another woman suddenly out of work as a professional cleaner. That's Thursday at 7 p.m. Please tell your friends about Open Ears Maine, and if possible, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you download. And if you like true crime, check out my other podcast, Devils and Dirtbags. We want to hear your pandemic stories. Email me at crash at crashberry.com. Is your time at home getting better or worse? Are you worried about the future or are you hopeful? And if you're an essential worker with a COVID-19 tale, we want to hear it. Also taking tips on heroes, helpers, and scoundrels. During these trials and tribulations of 2020, the email is crash at crashberry.com. Thanks for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.